everyone, and welcome to another thrilling adventure of Superman. My name is Michael Bradley, I am your host, and if you are tuning into the show for the first time, tuning in. I, I guess there's really not much tuning in when it comes to MP3s, is there? <laughs> if you are downloading or subscribing or streaming or whatever it is you do, if you're doing it for the first time, I want to give you a big welcome. And if you are returning to the show after having heard one or more of the previous episodes, then a, a big welcome back to you. This is episode 6 of the show, and this time out we will be looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 6. But before we get into that, I want to give a big thank you to Billy Hogan of the Superman Fan Podcast, Charlie Niemeyer of Superman in the Bronze Age, J. David Weeder of Superman Forever Radio, and Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor of From Crisis to Crisis for promoting the show. They've all repeatedly played the promo for the show, and if, or have plugged it in some way, and I'm very thankful to them for that. If anyone else has, has a podcast or website that has plugged the show, then thank you as well. If, if I didn't mention it, please drop me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com and let me know. Chances are I haven't heard it or seen it, or it's entirely possible I've forgotten, because sadly I do that from time to time as well. But if you've plugged the show, either known or unbeknownst to me, then I really thank you for your support. If you are just a listener, well, not just a listener, because there's no such thing as just a listener, because without listeners, podcasts wouldn't be anything. But if you're a listener, please be sure to check out all the shows that I mentioned, and links to those are available at the site, uh, www.greatcrypton.com. Between my show and John Wilson's Golden Age Superman and the shows put together by Billy, Charlie, Michael, Jeffrey, and David, literally every era of Superman comic books is getting covered, and I think that's fantastic. The support I've gotten for the show is definitely appreciated, and I'm going to try and be more on top of plugging shows that shows that have plugged me or shows that I enjoy, even if they aren't necessarily Superman-related. I've been a bit lax in that department in previous episodes, but from here on out I'm going to make an effort to try and do better on that. So like I said, this is episode 6 of the show, and I hope you're all doing well. I'm a little bit tired today. I had a bizarre dream last night involving Spider-Man and William Shatner, and yeah, you're probably better off not asking about details on that one. But uh, like I said at the top of the show, today we will be looking at Action Comics number 6, the cover to this issue was once more by Leo Amelia, and this is his last cover for the title. It shows a jungle hunter with a camera in his hand and a rifle by his side, hidden in the bushes. And behind him, apparently unbeknownst to the hunter, looms a large gorilla with his hand raised, ready to strike. It's a pretty nice cover. Not the best of the Amelia covers, but definitely not the worst. The coloring is very nice, and the, the detail on the gorilla is pretty good as well. It is, however, significant in that it is the first cover from DC to feature a monkey, ape, or gorilla on the cover. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the goofier points of comics history, the story goes that as publishers, DC in particular, started watching comic sales, they noticed that comics with monkeys and or apes on the covers tended to sell a little better than the others. And if a certain theme or story sells well, well, you can be sure that comic companies are going to repeat that. And so, as the years went on, more and more covers began appearing, featuring monkeys or apes or 
superheroes turned into monkeys or, you know, monkeys with superpowers or, you know, whatever. And while the practice eventually died off as we got to the more serious comics of the late Bronze Age and Modern Age, in recent years, companies have, well, aped the idea. And I know, I know, bad pun. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But they've brought it back a little bit with DC's JL Apes annuals in 1999 and the Marvel Apes series in 2008. But all of that, the monkey cover stick, can really be traced back to here, the first gorilla cover from DC, and I kind of found that interesting. The cover price for this issue was, of course, 10 cents, and amusingly, I noticed on the indicia inside the book that a 12-issue subscription could be ordered for $1.50. So it's more expensive to subscribe than to buy them off the newsstand. I looked back at earlier issues, and it's been like that in all the issues we've covered so far. And I just don't understand that practice. I mean, I can't imagine that they got many subscribers that way when it's cheaper to just go to the store, you know, and buy them off the newsstand whenever the new issue comes out. But I'm going to keep an eye on this down the road in future episodes because I'm curious at what point it became cheaper to subscribe to the book than to just buy it uh, straight away. Anyway, this issue has a November 1938 cover date, though the book was likely released sometime around October 4th of that year. And again, in the upper left corner, the cover has a circle telling us that the book is 64 pages of thrilling action. The type is set a little different in this issue than it was on the last cover, and it will revert back to the former next issue, but other than that minor change, this seal will remain on the book for a little less than a year, all the way through issue number 15. Turning inside the book, Superman's feature this issue has been given the titles Superman's Phony Manager and The Man Who Sold Superman. As far as credits go, we've possibly got an addition to the credits this time around. Jerry Siegel, or Jerome Siegel as the story assigned, is still the writer. Joe Schuster still did the art. Ben Sullivan is still given credit as editor. However, for the first time that I've come across, someone else is given credit for assisting on the art. I mentioned in the first episode that as work picked up with the addition of the newspaper strips and eventually the second Superman book, Schuster began employing a shop of artists to help him out with inking and background work. Honestly, I was initially not aware that those artists started this early, but both DC Comics and Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics credit Paul Cassidy as doing inking work on this story. In addition, the Grand Comic Book Database credits Paul Loretta as doing lettering and possibly doing inking as well on this story. There is a noticeable difference with the art in both the inking and the lettering, so a new artist would explain that. I was just caught by surprise that any of them started this early. I had always been under the impression that other men didn't start assisting with the art until early 1939. So perhaps it was such a thing that people were assisting a bit, but it it wasn't until 1939 that the Schuster shop was officially established. I'm going to have to look more into this sometime and keep a close eye on credits in future episodes, but in any event, I was pretty glad to find this out because learning more about who worked on these stories and which stories they worked on is always interesting to me and one of the many reasons that I wanted to do this show. In episode 17 of Billy Hogan's Superman Fan Podcast, 
Billy gave some biographical information on Paul Cassidy, along with other members of the Schuster shop. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes at greatcrypton.com, as well as a link to a page where you can get a brief bio on Paul Loretta. If you're interested in finding out more about either one of those, be sure to check out those links. And I'm sure as the show goes on, I'll be talking more about all the artists involved. I haven't quite worked out how to do it yet, but we've got some time before these creators really start digging their heels into the stories in a, in a solo capacity. So if you have any suggestions on that front, please drop me an email to thrillingadventures@greatcrypton.com and let me know your ideas. So like I said, this issue's Superman story is Superman's phony manager or the man who sold Superman. Last episode, I talked about how the Superman story in that issue started with a title banner where the previous four issues had started with a half-page splash that actually served as the first panel of the story. This issue, and pretty much from here on out, we get a combination of the two. We are going to find stories that start with a uh, a partial page splash that shows Superman doing something, well, something Supermanish, and the panel will contain a paragraph of text introducing the character. This particular issue starts off with the half page splash showing Superman leaping through the air high over buildings of the city below. It also has the title logo and again the tag of The Amazing Adventures of the Strongest Man on Earth. And I think that this is the last time that that tag is used. The introduction reads, Dedicated to assisting the helpless and oppressed is a mystery man named Superman. Possessing super strength, he can jump over a ten-story building, leap an eighth of a mile, run faster than an, an express train, lift tremendous weights, and crush steel in his bare hands. His amazing feats of strength become more apparent day after day. More or less, that's the same description that we got on the first page of the original story from Action Comics number one, which I covered in the first episode. We will see similarly worded blocks of text from here on out, and they'll play with the wording some, it won't always be worded exactly the same, and sometimes it will even be used to kick off the story itself. I really dig these intro paragraphs because it's just one paragraph and bam, you know everything you need to know to jump into the stories. It's a great introduction for new readers, and in recent years, a, a lot of DC Comics have brought these back, and I think it's mostly a Jeff Johns thing. And while I might argue that they don't quite serve the same purpose anymore, they're a nice throwback to the uh, Golden and Silver Age stories. And I love seeing how these introductions evolve, from here to the radio show to the Fleischer cartoons to George Reeves's Adventures of Superman, and even beyond that. Uh, the Fleischer cartoons and the George Reeves show are probably the two most famous, but clearly they all owe their origins back to these original introductions in the comics. As the story begins, we get two panels that bring us up to speed on things. We learn that news is spreading about Superman's amazing exploits, and we get a panel that shows headlines from various newspapers. And the cool thing about these headlines is they actually refer back to stories that we've seen. Uh, the headlines are Superman Smashes Munitions Ring, which we covered in episode number two. Superman Wars on Injustices, which was pretty much episode one. Entire Town Saved by Superman, episode five. The headline on the Daily Star is Mystery Man of Steel Reappears. 
This marks the first time we've seen that label applied to Superman. And even though it may just be a coincidence, I like that it's the Daily Star that bears that headline, rather than one of the other newspapers. You know, looking back, it's just, it's, it's neat to see the, the two put together. In the next panel, we are reminded that Clark Kent has been assigned to cover Superman's sightings. If you recall, the Daily Star's editor gave Clark that assignment back in Action Comics number one. Even though we don't see Clark actually doing too much reporting on Superman, that's a, a bit of continuity that carried over. This is a nice shot of Clark, too. It resembles a young Kent Taylor. In an early 90s interview with the Toronto Star, Joe Schuster said that Clark Gable and Kent Taylor, who were both big movie stars in the 30s, were the inspiration for Clark Kent's name. Other stories have been floated about throughout the years, some true, some not true, but the likeness to Taylor here does lend credence to the one that Joe Schuster gave to the Toronto Star. Or it could just be coincidence, too. Anyway, with the recap out of the way and everyone caught up to speed, the story begins proper as Clark is called to the editor's office. Upon arrival, he is introduced to Nick Williams, who, very much to Clark's surprise, claims to be Superman's personal manager. Clark is so surprised that the ashtray that he had been playing with in his palm is crushed as his grip tightens in shock. That has really nothing to do with the rest of the story. It's, it's just kind of one of those weird little side tangents, but thankfully this time it's only one panel instead of, you know, two or three pages. Anyway... Clark and the editor are skeptical about Williams' claim, but Williams says that he has a contract giving him sole commercial rights to Superman's name. He continues that he wants to make a deal with the star, since more Superman news is better for both of them. Williams says that he will give the star news of Superman's exploits if they agree to print them. Clark continues to doubt, of course, but asks Williams how they can be sure that he's able to do what he's claiming. Williams says that he can prove it and turns on the radio where they hear a commercial for Crackle's Cereal, sponsor of the new Superman radio program. And this, to me, seems amazingly prescient. Not only because we're still more than a year away from the real Superman radio program's beginning, but it's more than three years from when Kellogg's would begin their sponsorship of the program and Kellogg's would go on to have a long association with the character all the way through George Reeves' Adventures of Superman. After the commercial is over, Williams directs their attention out the window, where, again to Clark's surprise, they see a blimp passing by, towing a banner advertising Superman brand gasoline. Williams then points out a billboard touting the Superman Streamline Special, America's favorite automobile and the artwork on the billboard shows a car with Superman running alongside. <laughs> the Superman car seems a bit far-fetched, and one might wonder how Williams was able to get a car into production in 1930, but no matter. Williams goes on to tell Clark and the editor that he's also licensed Superman bathing suits, costumes, exercise equipment, and more as well as optioning movie rights and making plans for a Superman comic book. And that sound you heard was the fourth wall completely shattering, by the way. The editor asks how Superman contacted Williams, and Williams says that Superman just showed up one day and offered the idea, and thus the partnership was born. Clark continues to be doubtful, almost to the level of being amused at this point, 
So, Williams tells Clark that if he would like a personal interview with Superman, he should come to his office later that night and Williams would arrange it. Meanwhile, just outside the editor's office, a curious office boy with a round head, a very bad haircut, and a bow tie has been listening to the conversation and shortly tells Lois that Clark is going to meet with Superman in person. This fact sends Lois scheming to get in on the action. A lot of sources will cite this as the first appearance of Jimmy Olsen. However, I, I disagree with I, that idea, except when it is considered a retroactive appearance. The character of Jimmy Olsen had his official first appearance and was named in the April 15th, 1940 episode of the Superman radio serial. This office boy we see here will show up a couple more times before then, but like here, it's only for a panel or two and never in any capacity or role that leads me to believe that Siegel meant him for to be a fleshed-out recurring character, or that the writers of the radio serial took inspiration from the comics when they introduced him. In fact, this office boy... And I say this office boy, but I don't even know that Siegel made a conscious choice that it was to be the same character. But he isn't even called Jimmy until Superman number 13, and isn't called Jimmy Olsen until Superman number 15, both of which came out more than a year after Jimmy Olsen first appeared on the radio show. And even after he is finally named Jimmy in the comics, he still never really plays a large role in the stories until the 1950s. The character's use in The Adventures of Superman garnered a large fan following, and that is what ultimately led to the creation of Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, the, the ongoing series, and more frequent appearances in the Superman comics as a whole. So, is this the first appearance of Jimmy Olsen? My opinion is that, no it's not. Technically, I've got no problem with calling it a retroactive first appearance, but it, it's my opinion that officially the character won't debut until the radio show. And that's just my thoughts on the matter. You know, your mileage may vary. So, after getting the news that Clark is going to meet with Superman later that evening, Lois turns on the charm and strikes up a flirtatious conversation with Clark. Clark, once more far too excited, is utterly amazed that after many months of trying to get Lois to date him, Lois finally deems him worthy to even smile. Lois goes on about how she finally has come to her senses and wants Clark to take her out that night to celebrate. Clark tells her that he'd love to, but that he's got an important assignment. Lois makes him twist a bit, telling him that he's just as weak and spineless as she thought, and begins to withdraw her offer. But Clark saves the date by telling him that he will take her out, but that she'll have to accompany him on his assignment first. Lois agrees in the two-part ways, both laughing to themselves at how they've pulled one over on the other. Lois by playing Clark's emotions to weasel her way in on his assignment, and Clark by fooling Lois with his mild-mannered farce. Later that evening, Lois is getting ready and musing to herself about how she's so excited that she'll be able to meet Superman. Clark shows up right on time, and with a very dapper top hat, might I add, but he tells her it's early, so they will go to a nightclub before the appointment. While they are dancing, Clark tries to tell Lois how he feels, but Lois, who, unfortunately for Clark, looks every bit as bored dancing with him now as she did in the first issue, cuts him off and says the song is over and that the floor shan floor shan 
for show is set to begin. A singer comes out to the dance floor and announces that she will be performing a new song entitled You're a Superman and signals the band to start. Clark and Lois express their amazement that someone has written a song about Superman and the singer begins. And the singing goes on for an entire page, crooning about the many wonders of Superman via song. Times like this I really wish I had a voice for singing because this song is just priceless. But since I appreciate what listeners I do have, you're just going to have to settle for me reading the lyrics instead. The song goes, You're a Superman. You make my heart leap 10,000 feet. You're a Superman. But I'm the one gal who can get under your skin. When you crush me in your arms, I must reveal... I'm only flesh and blood, not resistless steel. You're a Superman. Your ardor's stronger than a human man's. You're a Superman. And when you spring to me, I am in ecstasy. Someday you're gonna leap to the altar at my feet. Then you're, then the whole world will know, because I'll tell all I know, that I want them to know that you're my Superman. Ah. <sighs> It's too bad this is only a comic book and we can't hear the melody. British writer and author Oliver Hertford once said, Song is the licensed medium for bawling in public things too silly or sacred to be uttered in ordinary speech. And I think that very much applies to this song here. It just really loses something when you can't hear the the melody behind it. The Superman homepage has listed more than 500 songs that mention Superman, but... Sadly, no one has recorded this one. Somebody should really write an arrangement for it and get to recording that, don't you think? Anyway, as the song goes on, Clark glances over at Lois and finds that she is absolutely mesmerized by the song. The scene switches to the office of Nick Williams, where we find Williams talking to an actor that he has hired to impersonate Superman during the interview with Clark. The actor expresses doubts about whether the interview was such a good idea, But Williams says that it is, and continues that Clark won't suspect anything because they've rigged a series of tricks to imitate Superman's strength. He says that with the newspapers supporting them, they'll be able to make all sorts of cash selling Superman's name. And since Superman is probably just a myth anyway, someone should cash in on it. So, this is interesting here because we've seen Superman making headlines and apparently being well-known enough to make to make those headlines and sell products and inspire a radio show and movies and comics, but still he's seen as possibly a myth to people. Eventually in the comic books, in fact very soon, they're going to throw off any pretense at all that Superman is not well known by the public. But I guess at this point he's more like an urban legend. And I wish Siegel would have dealt more with that in his stories, Superman's coming out so to speak, his slow revelation to the public, the idea of Superman not being a well-known public figure is very interesting to me for some reason. And I just wish that, you know, the Siegel would have explored that a little more. I do really give Schuster some credit here, though, for making this pseudo-Superman visibly quite distinct from the real thing. He's thinner, his shoulders aren't quite as broad, his face is quite different, and Even the hairstyle is dissimilar to that of Superman's. Even the costume itself looks pretty cheaply made. And just not quite up to spec, which 
given the amount of costume variation we've seen in, in these issues till now, that says something. And it all comes together and makes it much easier for the reader to discern between the two in what could have been a very confusing situation, especially for the younger readers. So, anyway, we cut back to the nightclub, and with the performance over, Clark suggests that they leave, but Lois says that they should have one more drink, and while Clark isn't looking, Lois drugs his drink. <laughs> and this could be seen as cosmic payback for when Superman drugged a football player and took over his life with no explanation two episodes ago, but it really begs the question about where people are getting all these narcotics that are powerful enough to render people unconscious in such a short amount of time. And more importantly, just why Lois happens to be carrying them around in her purse. <sighs> anyway, the drug knocks Clark out. Well, not really, but we'll get to that in a minute. And Clark face plants into the table, apparently unseen by all of the other patrons of the, and staff of the club. Lois laughs that her plan has worked and leaves. Yeah. Lois drugs him, then just leaves him passed out in the nightclub. What's a Superman comic without a little assault and battery, eh? So, Lois leaves the nightclub and hails a taxi, heading off to Williams' office. I'm not really sure how Lois found out where Clark's assignment was. I guess maybe Clark told her off-panel. But back inside the restaurant, Clark, who really was unaffected by the drug, rouses. And he muses, Double-crossing a pal, eh? Just like a newspaper woman. <sighs> Clark, this is the woman you've been trying to date. Why are you so interested in her if you know she's just going to double-cross you? Uh. So, Clark exits the club, and once outside, changes to Superman, poses for a money shot in the moonlight, then leaps off into the night in pursuit of Lois. We cut back to Williams' office, where Lois arrives. Her showing up, rather than Clark, surprises Williams, but Lois tells him that Clark was taken off the assignment. She fails to mention how she drugged him and left him unconscious and his lifeless body in a restaurant, but there you go. Lois asks where Superman is, and Williams says that he will be there shortly before oh-so-subtly snapping his fingers, thereby signaling the pseudo-Superman, who till now had been hiding just outside the window on a conveniently placed narrow ledge. The pseudo-Superman climbs inside, and Williams suggests he perform some super feats to further convince Lois. The pseudo-Superman proceeds to demonstrate how lifting Williams' desk above his head and bending a solid steel bar in half are mere child's play. He asks if Lois is convinced, and Lois replies very matter-of-factly, No. She then tells them that she knows both are fakes and is going to prove it. She lifts Williams' desk over her own head, revealing that it was merely a cardboard prop. She grabs the steel bar and unbends it, revealing that it wasn't steel, but aluminum. And what's more, she defiantly points a finger at the pseudo-Superman and tells him that she's met the real Superman and knows for sure that this man is nothing but a phony. Lois then begins an epic storm out, but Williams grabs her, saying that she knows too much and that they can't afford to let her live. He drags her over to the window and tells Pseudo-Superman to help him because they've got to toss her out the window to her death. Pseudo-Superman at first protests, but then goes along. 
Of course he does, because it's either kill Lois or not make a fortune. So they're going to toss Lois out the window and call it either an accident or suicide. Moments later, Lois is plummeting downwards towards a horrible death. Superman arrives on the scene just in time to see Lois's fall. He makes a frantic leap into the air, snatching Lois with one hand, somehow not breaking her neck in a way that is only possible in a, in a comic book physics kind of way, and lands safely on the ground below. He sets her down and tells her to stay there, then heads off to confront the swindlers. Superman makes another leap, this time into the window. He surprises Williams and the pseudo-Superman, surprising them not only because they weren't expecting him, but because that he actually exists after all. The two crooks dash into a nearby elevator and the door shut before Superman can grab them. However, Superman proceeds to rip open the elevator doors with his bare hands. He grabs the cable of the descending elevator car and begins towing it back upward until he can again confront the crooks. When the elevator car has reached Superman's floor, he demands that Williams and the pseudo-Superman get out of the car or he'll let it loose. The two climb out, but the pseudo-Superman swells up a bit of moxie and tries to fight back. He takes a gallant swing at Superman, but as one might expect, receives only a broken hand for his efforts. Superman then grabs the two crooks and leaps out the window. After picking up Lois, Superman makes another leap, towing the two crooks in one hand behind him, towards the local police station. He tells Lois to take the two men inside and press charges of attempted murder. Proof? We don't need any proof. But before Superman can leave, Lois asks when she will see him again. I must see you, she says. I must. But Superman tells her that that is in the hands of fate. A short while later, inside the police station, an officer asks if the two crooks plead guilty to the charges. But they both claim innocence. The pseudo-Superman then glances out the window and sees Superman staring in at them. Scared out of his wits that there's no protection from the real Superman if they aren't locked up, the pseudo-Superman confesses everything. Williams tries to attack, but is restrained by officers, and the chief officer orders them both thrown behind bars. No word on what Lois thinks happens to Clark. As far as we know, she still thinks he's passed out at a nightclub, possibly getting rolled for his wallet or something. <sighs> that detail aside, I, I enjoyed this story quite a bit. The catching us up to speed panels at the beginning were a nice nod to the other stories published before now. And while the main plot is kind of silly, it's still a fun and, and enjoyable read. For once we have a Superman where he's not drugging someone or coercing them into joining a militia or trapping people in a mine where they could pot potentially die... And that's a nice switch, I think. He doesn't even mess with Lois after she drugged him, which, you know, quite honestly, I was expecting him to do something and try to, quote-unquote, teach her a lesson or something. I can't help but wonder if this story wasn't done as a preemptive, tongue-in-cheek strike against those who might try to capitalize off Superman's success. Six issues in... Detective had to have seen sales numbers showing that Superman was a bigger success than they were expecting. Wonder Man, uh, who was created by Will Eisner at the behest of Victor Fox for Fox Publications, he was one of the earliest Superman knockoffs, and that came out in early 1939. And here we are already in the fall of 1938, so even if word hadn't spread to other companies yet, word had to be building in-house 
about the huge success that Superman was. And we know that in these early days, DC was very litigiously protective of Superman. They were going after just about anything that seemed to be a clone of their top character. Captain Marvel is the most famous example, even if that character wouldn't come out for another year or more. And it really wouldn't surprise me if this story wasn't suggested by Vin Sullivan, or even thought up by Siegel himself as a light warning shot to competitors, or even just a way to send a message to kids that, you know, accept no invitations, this is the real Superman. Or it could have been solely Siegel and Schuster's idea. What's interesting is that there are some loose sketches that Schuster did in the mid-1930s. Um, one is dated 1936, in fact, a couple years before the character was sold, that show different ideas they had for marketing the character, including cereal boxes, workout clothes, and more. We can't know for sure, of course, the source of inspiration for this story, but both seem fairly plausible, and given the odd nature of the story which seems quite a departure from the types of stories we've seen so far, since here Superman is mostly just defending his trademark rather than being the champion of the oppressed that we've seen in the prior five issues. My feeling is that there is more to this story than it just being just another idea. After the story concludes, there is a panel advertising that more Superman stories will appear in future issues of Action Comics. But the image of Superman in this panel is just... odd. It doesn't look like your typical Joe Schuster Superman, so I don't know if this was reworked by another artist or what exactly happened to it. Superman is standing in the typical hands-on-hips pose, but his cape is sort of wrapped around him like a shawl to the point where it almost looks like he put the thing on backward. His shield is completely obscured, his face is drawn with very enhanced cheekbones, which I think is really what's most off-putting about it. On the bright side, the spit curl is the most pronounced we've seen it, <laughs> almost comedically so, so that's something, I guess. At the bottom of the last page, we also get the second installment of the Acquiring Super Strength feature. The first installment happened back in Action Comics number 4, which... I talked about in episode number four. There we learned how to build muscles by first lifting small objects and working our way up to larger ones. But this time out, we learn about muscle training. To train your super muscles, you want to begin by clenching your fists as tight as possible. Then move your hands at the wrists, jerking your hands in various directions. And soon, you will develop a crushing grip. Or something. I can't imagine this working as written here. I've never tried it, but I don't think it would result in anything other than making you look like an idiot, you know, swinging your fists all around, and possibly spraining something if you do it too much. But, hey, what do I know? If any of you have tried this and it worked for you, let me know. Inquiring minds want to know. The art in this issue is a step up from what we've seen. There seems to be a lot more detail in the figures, and especially in the backgrounds. For instance, the scenes in the Daily Star are particularly nice, because you see folks working in the background, pressmen, reporters, etc. 
then later in the nightclub, we see more detail in the decor of the club and silhouettes of the patrons while the singer is performing. And with the elevator at the end, there's a lot of intricate detail with the grating and the elevator design. There's just a lot more detail than we've seen in the previous five issues, which is really nice. As much as I hate to be down on Schuster's art, detail just wasn't his strong suit. Uh, my guess is the presence of that second artist, uh, Paul Cassidy or even Paul Loretta, if that's who it was, had a lot to do with the differences here. In our ongoing look at the evolution of the costume, Superman still has the red boots that made their debut last issue, and the chest shield has unfortunately reverted back to the inverted yellow triangle with the slightly stylized red S in the center. In a couple of panels, particularly the closer-up shots, we see the shield is looking more like a pentagon shape, but the two additional sides are pretty short, and they're just not as large as last issue, for instance, so... I'm sticking with the inverted triangle description, even though it may not strictly be a triangle. The costume of the pseudo-Superman is the same, but like I said earlier, I thought Schuster did a good job with the art and making the two clearly distinguishable from one another, which really helped the story overall. This story has been reprinted three times, in Superman number 3, which had a winter 1940 cover date, as well as Superman Archives Volume 1 and Superman Chronicles Volume 1. This is the last comic book story for several issues that got reprinted outside of the Archives and Chronicles series. On the subject of reprints, I'm curious how many people listening to the show are following along with my recaps via the reprints. Or if you're experiencing these for the first time, you know, without the reprint in front of you. Or if you've read them in days gone by and are reliving them now without the comics. Uh, send me an email to thrillingadventures@greatcrypton.com and let me know, or post a comment on the site at greatcrypton.com. We'll call it an unofficial poll, because I'm really kind of curious what the listenership of the show is doing. Other features in this issue were the standard ones, Chuck Dawson, Pet Morgan, Marco Polo, Tex Thompson, Scoop Scanlon, and Zaytara. The Superman story, the one we just talked about, was 13 pages. Uh, back up to its standard length after getting shortened to 9 last issue. And the rest of the features are all their standard length, so there was a bit less filler uh, this time out in the issue. There's not much notable about any of the additional features in this book. The Zaytara story does feature the return of the Tigress. She originally appeared in Action Comics number 1 as well, and was one of Zaytara's most frequently recurring villains. I haven't mentioned it earlier in the show, and it's not a significant issue, but I thought I would take just a few seconds and talk about story order. The Superman feature was always the lead feature in the book, and judging by what we know from history and how he will soon take over the covers a few issues down the road, Superman was clearly the, the most popular feature in the book. Until about 1947 or so, Zaytara, which was... I believe the longest-running feature in the book, aside from Superman, always held the final spot in the book. The other features tended to juggle around a bit, and eventually we will see them juggle into a set order. But even then, that order never becomes uh, set in absolute stone. As, as features are canceled or uh, new features move into the book, That the, the center order between the Superman and the Zaytara stories, they do jumble around just a little bit. 
As far as other books, there's just not a lot to talk about in this episode, I'm afraid. We had More Fun Comics number 37, Detective Comics number 21, and probably what was the most notable issue of the month, Adventure Comics number 32, which drops the new from its title for the first time this month. All the books had their regular ongoing features, including the ones by Siegel and Schuster, and there's just not really much else to mention about them beyond the name change. I don't normally talk about real-world history events. I'm not a history buff, and I just hate to read a bunch of events from Wikipedia when ultimately they, they don't really have much impact on Superman long-term. But there is one thing I wanted to point out that happened in October 1938, and that was the broadcast of Orson Welles' adaptation of H.G. Welles' War of the Worlds. The story details an alien invasion of Earth, and the broadcast is famous for the reaction that it stirred. The first two-thirds or so of the program was done in the style of news bulletins. Legend holds that a lot of people who only heard portions of the program believed that it was real, and the extent of the panic that it caused is still debated to this day, and I believe current thought is that it wasn't quite what the legend has built it up to be, but nonetheless, the notoriety behind the broadcast remains. To bring it back to Superman, in 1998, DC Comics published a comic titled Superman, War of the Worlds. Written by Roy Thomas with great art by Michael Lark, the story is an adaptation of H.G. Wells' original story, but blended with the Superman mythology. The comic was part of DC's Elseworlds line of stories, which are stories that take characters out of their usual settings and put them, as DC describes it, into strange times and places, some that have existed and others that can't, couldn't, or shouldn't exist. This particular comic is a really great story that I highly recommend. The Superman in the story is very, very similar to the Golden Age Superman, uh, the same power set, the same surroundings, etc. In fact, the story is set in 1938 Metropolis rather than late 19th century Britain like the original. I'm not going to go too much more into it because it deserves more time than I can properly devote to it here. I may do a special episode on it at some point where I can uh, talk about it more in depth. And I'm sure that Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, when they get to that point in the comics, that they'll cover it too. In the meantime, though, I recommend you try to track down a copy of it. You can probably find it on eBay or in the back issue bins for not much more than you'd pay for a normal comic book today. So try to do that. It's a, it's a very well-done story with great art and great writing, and it's a nice blending of the two creations. Coming October 31st, 2010, Superman Forever Radio, a new weekly podcast which will focus on Superman and his family of comics, movies, television shows, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and the latest and classic adventures of the Man of Steel, an in-depth look at a variety of topics throughout Superman's 70-plus years of history. Join host J. David Weeder every Sunday for Superman Forever Radio, coming October 31st, 2010. For more information, go to supermanforever.com. Rocketed from the doomed planet Krypton, the baby Kal-El was found and raised by the Kents. Now grown, Clark Kent, as Superman, fights for truth and justice. 
Years later, a rocket holding his 17-year-old cousin, Kara Zorel, lands on Earth. Now, living in Metropolis, she fights for truth and justice alongside her cousin as Supergirl. Together, they form the Superman family and fight for truth, justice, and the American way. The Superman Family Podcast is a bi-weekly podcast that covers any and all Superman-related books that fall under the umbrella of the Superman Family. From Power Girl all the way to Crypto the Superdog, as well as all your favorite Superman-related news and much, much more. Join me for some Superman Family fun only at supermanfamily.com. Well, everyone, that does it for another episode of The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. I want to thank you again for listening. If you have any questions or comments on the show or feedback, please feel free to email me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. I got a nice email from my old friend Michael Kaiser with some feedback saying he was enjoying the show. And I replied to that straight away, so I'm not going to read it again on the air, but I did appreciate hearing from him. As always, be sure to drop by www.greatcrypton.com for show notes, images, links, etc. You can leave feedback there too if it's more convenient. If you would like to subscribe to the show, you can do that two ways. First, via the RSS feed available at greatcrypton.com, and secondly, via iTunes. If you subscribe via iTunes and have an opportunity, I'd appreciate it if you could leave an iTunes review. It helps folks find the show a little better. I got my first iTunes review from Charlie Niemeyer a couple days ago. Well, it'll probably be a couple weeks ago by the time you hear this, but I thank Charlie for that, and I'm glad that he's enjoying the show and finds it useful. Also be sure to check out the Superman Podcast Network at fortressofbailytude.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork. All the shows I mentioned at the top of the episode post there when they have new episodes out. And there are several more shows that do as well, with more shows popping up all the time. So definitely check that out. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, folks, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. Stop by for breakfast, Jimmy. Oh, excuse me a moment, will you? Hey, Mr. Kent, you're out of Kellogg's cornflakes. Look at the cover. There's a spare package. You mean there was a spare package? Well, how about running down the store and picking up another one? Jeepers, we've got to get to the office. There's no time. Who do you think I am? Superman? Uh, no. No, I don't think that. Out of Kellogg's cornflakes. Fine host he is.
Even if Superman did deliver Kellogg's cornflakes, he'd have a tough time keeping everybody happy. More people run out of them every morning than any other cereal. Because Kellogg's cornflakes taste best to more people. Always have, still do. Don't run out at your house. Remember, any time you buy cereal of any kind, pick up a spare package of Kellogg's Corn Flakes. <laughs>